Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Two thousand nineteen marks fifty years since Apollo eleven landed on the moon on July twentieth, nineteen sixty nine, capturing the attention of viewers worldwide who eagerly awaited the first photographs taken on site. Photography played a key role in the space race of the nineteen sixties, both as a tool of scientific documentation and as a medium of public relations. In this lecture, held on October twentieth, two thousand nineteen, in celebration of the exhibitions. By the Light of the Silvery Moon, A Century of Lunar Photographs at the National Gallery of Art, and Apollo's Muse, The Moon in the Age of Photography at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, curator Mia Feynman explores the connections as well as the tensions between these two functions, delving into the fascinating history of lunar imaging. A few years ago, uh, when I noticed that the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing was coming up, I thought it would be a great time to organize an exhibition on uh, the moon in the age of photography. Um, of course, uh, a few other people had the same idea, uh, which is great. Um, so uh, this year, there was really an abundance of lunar, amazing lunar imagery um, on view, uh, including the photographs in uh, Diane's show, By the Light of the Silvery Moon, here uh, at the gallery. Um, so when I started working on uh, my exhibition, Apollo's Muse, um, I didn't really know all that much about uh, astronomy uh, or telescopes or rocket science uh, or the history of the Cold War, um, so there was a pretty steep learning curve. Uh, looking back, uh, one of the most surprising things I discovered was the close connection between art and science in the history of lunar exploration. Ever since Galileo first pointed a telescope at the heavens in 1609, the study of the moon has mingled observation and imagination, fluctuating between scientific fact and speculative fantasy. Today, I want to explore a few examples of this commingling of art and science and of fact and fiction in the history of lunar imagery. And Although the title of this lecture is The Moon in the Age of Photography, uh, the story actually begins about 400 years ago with the invention of the telescope in 1608. As soon as the astronomer Galileo Galilei heard of this amazing new instrument, he built his own telescope and used it to look closely at the moon. And that's a picture of uh, Galileo's telescope, uh, which uh, still exists uh, in the Galileo Museum in Florence, if you want to go and see it firsthand. So Galileo carefully recorded what he saw in words and images. And in 1610, he published the first drawings of the moon as views, viewed through a telescope in his groundbreaking book, Sidereus Nuncius, or Starry Messenger. His detailed drawings that you're looking at here revealed that the moon was not just a pretty glowing disk in the sky. It was actually a place with a craggy mountainous landscape that could be mapped, studied, and maybe even explored someday. As telescopes improved, astronomers worked with artists to produce hand-drawn maps charting newly identified 
topographical features, as in these exquisitely detailed engravings by Claude Malan from 1635, showing the moon in three different phases. Um, and these are large-scale, beautiful prints. So to people in the 17th century, like artists and writers and religious scholars, the Earth satellite viewed through a telescope and charted in these newly published maps and drawings appeared tantalizingly close and yet achingly unreachable. Astronomical discoveries from this time inspired a profusion of literary and artistic lunar voyages on a variety of fantastic conveyances like uh, fireworks, flying chariots, giant birds, human-powered wings, and astral projection. One of the most influential accounts of lunar travel was a book called The Man in the Moon by Francis Godwin, an English bishop and historian, that was first published in 1638. This is the title page and frontispiece. The story follows the adventures of a Spanish merchant who gets lost in the East Indies and harnesses a flock of giant geese to transport him between the islands. So that's where you see him here. And he built this sort of contraption, kite-like contraption to, uh, to harness them. And birds uh, start to fly higher and higher and eventually reaching the moon that you see up uh, in the left-hand corner. And then he arrives there and discovers a race of tall Christian people uh, who speak a musical language and enjoy life in a pastoral paradise. And um, there were many other accounts like this published uh, in the 17th and early 18th centuries, you know, imagining all different things. And uh, they were uh, partly uh, in the tradition of utopian uh, literature, uh, but also, of course, related to the exploration of the New World by European explorers uh, who were sending back uh, reports of these strange new lands um, across the ocean. The fantasy of life on the moon continued to grip the public imagination uh, at the dawn of photography in the, in the early 19th century. Uh, and this was a time when the rapid pace of scientific discovery sometimes made it difficult to discern truth from fiction. In 1835, the New York Sun tabloid newspaper published a series of satirical articles claiming that the renowned English astronomer Sir John Herschel had observed life on the moon through his giant telescope on the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa. The articles described a gorgeous land of enchantment, populated by tiny zebras and bison, uh, unicorn-like goats, bipedal beavers, and most spectacularly, humanoid creatures with copper-colored hair and bat-like wings. Uh, the series became an international media sensation. It was published and translated um, all over uh, the US and Europe and um, inspired many artists' interpretations, like this Italian print that was made to accompany the, uh, the Italian reprint of these articles. Now, this was an early example of satirical fake news that later became known as the Great Moon Hoax. Um, the author's intention wasn't actually to fool people. It was supposed to be a satire of this idea that there might be life on the moon, but he, it, the satire was so well done that he sort of, he, overestimate, he underestimated the gullibility of his readers, um, and, and many people, including scientists and university professors, believed it. 
So just a few years later, when the invention of photography was announced in 1839, cameras and telescopes were used together to capture images of the moon's surface. And this was really as soon as, as there were cameras, uh, photographers began trying to photograph the moon. The earliest photographs of the moon were daguerreotypes. Uh, these are unique images captured on a polished copper plate that's coated with light-sensitive silver salts and then placed inside the camera and exposed to light to make a unique photographic image. This is a daguerreotype by John Draper. On the screen, it looks big and beautiful. In reality, it's only about uh, two inches uh, square. It's a, it's a tiny little object that's a uh, unique and we believe uh, is the earliest surviving photograph of the moon. Draper was a chemistry professor at New York University um, and he made this image by attaching the camera to his own telescope and then making an exposure that lasted for 30 minutes. Uh, so that's a very long time. And during that time, he would have probably needed to move the camera and telescope slowly uh, to follow the course of the moon as it moved slowly through the sky. Um, and that was a big uh, technical uh, requirement for lunar photography when, uh, when the exposures had to be so long. In the 1840s and 50s, celestial photography was a major subject of research at Harvard College University, home to what was then the largest telescope in America, the Great Refractor. And that's what you see on the upper left. That telescope is still there at Harvard. It's, it's not used for research anymore, but it was for decades used to chart the heavens and observe the moon. Beginning in 1849, the director of the observatory, William Bond, partnered with John Adams Whipple, a Boston photographer, to produce a stunning series of lunar daguerreotypes, such as the one you see in the center. And these were very successful, and they were copied and exhibited at the Crystal Palace exhibition in London in 1851. Uh, so many people saw them, and it inspired many photographers to try their hand at their own lunar photographs. In the late 1850s, uh, Whipple again used the telescope to produce a series of glass negatives and salted paper prints uh, that were even more detailed, and that's what you see at the bottom right. So this was really, these were really very successful early experiments in lunar photography. Now, as the technology of both cameras and telescopes improved, photographers were able to capture ever more detailed and sharper images of the moon's surface, such as this photograph from 1865 by Lewis Morris Rutherford, an amateur astronomer who constructed a 14-foot-long telescope in the backyard of his home in New York City and also developed a, a special lens for the telescope that was particularly good for photography. Uh, so he produced extraordinarily precise images of the moon uh, that were widely celebrated for their beauty. And you can see um, an original print by Rutherford in the exhibition here uh, at the gallery. So by the 1860s and 70s, photographs of the moon were getting clearer and more detailed, yet it still wasn't possible to 
produce a close-up photographic image of the moon's craters with 19th century technology. Now remember, the moon is a quarter million miles away from the Earth, and the light that's hitting it is really just reflected light from the sun. So that's, that reflected light needs to travel uh, you know, 240,000 miles to the Earth to hit the, the, the uh, lens of a camera. And so it was just, there just wasn't enough light to, to really get a close-up image uh, uh, for some time. So images with this level of detail really still needed to be drawn by hand, as in these astronomical illustrations by the artists John Brett and Etienne Trouvelot. So you could see these things with the naked eye through a telescope, but you couldn't capture them with the camera's lens. In the 1870s, a Scottish engineer named James Naismith devised a technique that sidestepped these technical limitations of photography. Now, because the camera couldn't capture close-up views of the moon's surface, what he did is he created plaster casts of the craters that he saw through his telescope. And so that's what you're looking at here is his telescope. And then at the bottom on the ground are these plaster models that he's created. Okay, he then photographed the models in raking light to produce fabricated images of astonishing verisimilitude, which he published in his 1874 book, The Moon, Considered as a Planet, a World, and a Satellite. Now, Naismith probably adopted the method from his father, Alexander Naismith, who was a well-known Scottish landscape painter who used plaster models as studies uh, in his, for his paintings. So here we see art and science working hand in hand to produce an illustration that allows us to see things that can't be photographed quite yet. And although this seems like a kind of fakery to modern eyes. He's showing photographs of these, of these models. Scientists at the time were deeply impressed by Naismith's illustrations, and many were convinced by his argument that lunar craters were the result of volcanic activity on the moon. This was part of the, his thesis about the, how these craters came to be. Now, Scientists now believe that craters were created through uh, the impact of meteors rather than through volcanic activity. But at the time, it was still an open debate. And so uh, scientists were arguing about you know, uh, how, these, how these geological features were formed. Now, while some photographers were gazing at the moon through telescopes uh, in the 1870s, others were captivated by the mystery and enchantment of moonlight here on Earth. In Venice, uh, Carlo Naya operated a commercial photo studio specializing in romantic moonlit views of the city. So we're looking at the Grand Canal by moonlight. Now, because photographic emulsions were not sensitive enough to record images at night by moonlight, remember at this point, there's really still no electric light in cities, he would make photographs during the day, usually in, on a cloudy afternoon, and then create the illusion of moonlight through a variety of darkroom tricks. So in this day for night image, from the mid-1870s, what you see behind the cloud that looks like the moon, that's actually the sun. Um, and uh, the, there are hand-painted highlights glittering uh, on, on the water here, on the domes of the cathedral, 
over here, these highlights, and even, even this is even accentuated a little bit, creating highlights both on the negative and on the print to create a very convincing illusion. Now, these would have been bought by tourists who are visiting Venice, you know, go look, you know, see this view of the Grand Canal and they want to take home a souvenir image. And so they go to their local print shop and they could buy one of these photographs and take it home with them. Did, did they know that this was taken during the day? Probably not. Did, would they have cared? Maybe not. <laughs> so at the end of the 19th century, the French astronomers Maurice Lowy and Pierre Puisseux used the Paris Observatory's powerful refractor telescope to produce a comprehensive photographic atlas of the moon. Um, and you can see some of these plates um, also in uh, Diane's show uh, down the hall. Now, beginning in 1894, they spent every clear night systematically photographing the moon. Over the course of 14 years, they produced more than 6,000 dry plate glass negatives, um, and they're choosing only the best for publication. And there, there were many failures uh, that they discarded. Um, and then when they had their best images, uh, they transferred the negatives to etching plates uh, to create a portfolio of 71 photogravures of unprecedented clarity. So a photogravure is a, a print that's made using a photograph as the basis. The plates were issued in 12 installments over the course of about a decade and uh, were collected by uh, both individuals and institutions who wanted to see this, this map of the moon. And each of the plates was accompanied by a tissue paper overlay that had the names of all of the geographical features of the moon inscribed on it. And so this was really the culmination of 19th century, the 19th century effort to map the moon photographically. Now, in the summer of 1902, uh, while Lowy and Puisseux were wor working on their atlas at the Paris Observatory, the magician and filmmaker Georges Méliès was at work in a studio just outside Paris, producing a whimsical motion picture called Le Voyage dans la Lune, A Trip to the Moon. In this film, a group of learned astronomers board a cannon-propelled space capsule to the moon, explore its craters and caverns, and flee from an army of insect-like lunar inhabitants. We're going to play a clip now from that film. So that was um, just a brief clip from a, um, 
it's a, it was a hand-colored version of the film that Melies produced. Um, so each frame of this 12-minute uh, you know, film needed to be colored by hand individually. Um, and um, these copies existed, um, and it was recent, one of them was recently restored um, by a, a group in Paris. So uh, now we're able to see uh, you know, what the uh, colored version originally looked like. Now, the film was uh, an international blockbuster, um, and its imagery proliferated in the popular culture at the time. Um, it's very likely that this scene of a lunar goddess suspended on a crescent moon uh, served as the inspiration for what became a paper moon meme in the popular culture of the early 20th century. Uh, so this is now at the height of the picture postcard craze, which lasted uh, from about 1905 to 1915. And there were photography studios all around at carnivals, main streets, state fairs, and amusement parks that offered sitters a variety of playful backdrops and props to pose with. And among the most popular of these backdrops was the paper moon, a cutout crescent moon, usually enhanced with a smiling face set against a field of stars. And there were countless variations on this. Some of them had um, an airplane in the back, uh, like, like here. The Wright brothers had just uh, performed their first motorized flight that decade. And um, it was incredibly popular. People would pose by themselves or in couples and, or in groups and provide themselves with a perfect souvenir of their imaginary trip. To the moon. Uh, some, they may have even gone to do this after seeing uh, Melies's film uh, to experience it for themselves in this in, in fantasy. Now, the first film to present a semi-plausible vision of space flight was Fritz Lang's Frau im Mond, Woman in the Moon. Melies was interested in, in space. It, he, he was interested in the moon as a setting for his film, but he really wasn't very interested in the actual mechanics of space travel. However, by 1929, rocket science was actually making major strides, and Fritz Lang wanted to create what he uh, thought of as the first scientifically accurate spaceflight film. The screenplay imagines a rocket expedition to the moon, uh, which is uh, spiced up by a love triangle and a villainous scheme to mine gold from lunar caverns. Lang hired a scientific advisor, the German rocket scientist uh, Hermann Oberth, who was actually a mentor of Werner von Braun. He was a pioneering rocket scientist who actually developed the idea of the multi-stage rocket. But how scientific veracity had its limits. You'll notice this is a scene on the moon. What's missing? Yes, spacesuits space suits and helmets. Um, when Oberth um, insisted uh, that the moon had no atmosphere, um, Long uh, replied, how could one present a love story taking place on the moon and have the lead characters talk to each other and hold hands through spacesuits? Not possible. So, so in Long's re, uh, version, um, there is no, uh, uh, there is there is actually air on the moon that, that these uh, that these explorers can breathe. 
Oberth was also closely involved with the design of a massive multi-stage rocket that became one of the film's most celebrated special effects. Um, and this is a press print of the workers in the UFO studios uh, constructing uh, the model that would be used uh, in the film. Uh, but in exchange for his services, uh, Long and the UFO studio also helped finance the construction of a real liquid-fueled rocket to be launched from a site on the Baltic Sea in celebration of the film's premiere in Berlin. Unfortunately, Oberth ran out of time and money, and the project fizzled before the film opened. So here we've got an imaginary voyage to the moon helping to finance um, a real rocket uh, that unfortunately never actually uh, gets to launch. So at the dawn of the space age, science fact and science fiction were sometimes hard to tell apart. On the left, we are looking at a publicity photograph showing an early moon suit designed in the late 1950s by Alan B. Hazard, a development engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. When Hazard left NASA to join Aerojet General Corporation, he went ahead and created a prototype of the suit, which he is modeling on, uh, in this photograph. Weighing 200 pounds, it carried within it uh, food, water, a radio, a tiny stove, and an air conditioning <laughs> system uh, to protect the wearer from extreme temperature fluctuations. I wonder about the stove inside the suit and how that would fluctuate the temperature, but um, that, was, that was the uh, design. The suit uh, never made it to the moon, but it did become a popular sensation. There were photographs of it uh, published in Life magazine, uh, in, um, in Boy's Life, uh, in uh, Popular Mechanics, and and in 1966, it was used as the costume of uh, Mattel's astronaut action figure, Major Matt Mason, you see on the right. Um, so if any of you played with this toy, the uh, suit was actually based on a real engineering prototype. Now we're going to fast forward to July 1969, when half a billion people watched the TV coverage of the Apollo 11 moon landing. That's a fifth of the world's population at the time. It's probably the, uh, the first major media event of that scale. CBS News covered the moon landing for 32 continuous hours with live commentary by news anchor Walter Cronkite and then retired astronaut Wally Shearer. This is a picture of Cronkite holding a scale model of Apollo 11's lunar module Eagle, which was used by CBS. Uh, it's not just a toy. It was actually used to create visuals of the moon landing itself. Now, remember, there were no television cameras on the moon to record the descent <laughs> of the eagle. Uh, so what is, what is a network going to do? They've got the audio from NASA, which is being broadcast from through Houston, but there's nothing to show on screen. So CBS and other networks created animated visuals to accompany NASA's audio transmission. And the audio and visuals are slightly out of sync because the landing took a few seconds longer than anticipated because uh, Neil Armstrong had to actually land manually because there were some rocks right where they were programmed to land. And so he had to move slightly with like, you know, zero, hardly any gas fuel left. And so let's watch this clip.
So this is what millions of people watched on TV in 1969. So this eagle has landed, but <laughs> the other one, the one actually on the moon, is still being navigated. It's still incredibly moving and thrilling, you know, even though this, what we're looking at really is just a, it's like a cartoon, you know, it's, a, it's, an, it's an animation, you know, I mean, the, the audio is real, you know, but, uh, but this is, it's, a, it's an interesting blend of fact and fiction that uh, I think people at the time, although it said at the bottom of the screen, you know, CBS animation, you know, I think people were so transfixed by what was happening, you know, they might not have even noticed or even thought about the fact that, well, you know, of course they can't film that, uh, you know, I mean, then when Neil Armstrong got out of the, um, the module and set up the TV camera, then there was an actual live transmission. But um, all of the uh, networks, you know, worked closely with NASA uh, to create these exact replicas um, of the uh, of all of the technology that was used in the moon landing, so they could present um, as plausible a visual uh, representation as possible. So in recent years, contemporary artists have created a lot of work um, exploring the slippage between truth and fiction in lunar imagery. In the summer of 1999, uh, the 30th anniversary of Apollo 11, the artist Alexandra Meir created a performance on the be a beach in the Netherlands um, called uh, The First Woman on the Moon. Over the course of a day, bulldozers transformed uh, the, uh, this village shoreline into a crater-filled lunar landscape as sunbathers on the beach watched in amusement. Um, at sunset, Mir and her colleagues climbed up uh, on the top of a crater, uh, planted an American flag in the sand, and she declared herself first woman on the moon. Now, clearly this is a commentary on the fact that of the, uh, all the 12 people who set foot on the moon uh, in the 60s and early 70s were, uh, were white American men. The performance was broadcast live on Dutch television, much like the media spectacle surrounding the actual landing of Apollo 11. I've got a little clip from her video that she made after the event documenting it.
Before the bulldozers returned the beach to its previous state, uh, Mir invited uh, all the spectators to join her on the moon uh, to claim their own slice of history. Uh, so there were people running up shouting, oh, I am the first gay man, I'm the first black man, I'm the first German, I'm the first pre pregnant woman on the moon. Um, and it was a truly democratic spectacle. Um, and uh, she actually uh, sent a copy of the video to Neil Armstrong, um, who loved it and, and thought thought it was hilarious. And uh, it's you know just I'll just note that uh, this week uh, was the uh, first all female spacewalk um, at the um, uh, so um, that there's another sort of uh, momentous event uh, in the democratization of space. Another more recent work is this photograph by the Swiss photographers uh, Joachim Cordes and Adrian Sonderegger. These are artists who um, are known for building painstakingly accurate models of famous photographs, which they then rephotograph with the camera pulled back to reveal the tools of their artifice. So here we see Buzz Aldrin's famous footprint on the lunar surface. Got the original photograph here. We've got it, but they recreate it in plaster and cement. And then it's around it, you see paintbrushes, a protractor, uh, and other tools. And also at the bottom, uh, you see some other footprints. They're, they're Converse All-Stars sneakers. Um, uh, so it's, you know, and then the, the photograph itself is, is uh, printed very large, so you can really see all these details. Uh, and of course, this is uh, in part a nod to conspiracy theories that the moon landing was faked in a Hollywood studio, possibly under the direction of Stanley Kubrick. Um, now, of course, the moon landing did really happen, um, and if anyone here has any doubts about that, um, I don't want to know. <laughs> don't tell me, because we'll get into a big argument. Um, so, but um, as we've seen here today, art and artifice have played an important role in the history of scientific lunar imagery. The study of the moon has always involved a fascinating interplay between science and art, between fact and fantasy, between observation and imagination. And hopefully this productive partnership will continue as we venture out farther into the universe. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.